Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, the host of this podcast, where my guests tell me the five things from their life that they would like to put in a time capsule for safekeeping. Well, four things they cherish and would like to keep safe, but also one thing that they wish they could forget and erase from their past. Telling me the five things they've chosen in this episode is the singer and TV presenter Rita Maria Crudington, better known to everyone, except her mum and dad, as Cheryl Baker. Cheryl was part of the pop group Bucks Fizz, who won the 1981 Eurovision Song Contest. They went on to have 20 hit singles over the next eight years, including three number ones in the British chart, making your mind up the song that won them Eurovision, The Land of Make Believe and My Camera Never Lies. Following a serious coach crash in 1984 in which Cheryl was badly injured and her fellow band member Mike Nolan suffered serious head injuries, she helped to set up the charity Head First, which she continues to raise money for to this day. In fact, she ran the London Marathon in aid of the charity, and she talks about that in this podcast. In the mid-1980s, Cheryl started her TV presenting career, working on such shows as Record Breakers with the late Roy Castle and the Saturday Picture Show with the ex-Blue Peter presenter Mark Curry. She was in the London production of Footloose and the musical Honk, and she's been on many TV shows like Pop Star to Opera Star, All Star Family Fortunes, Celebrity Mastermind and dancing on ice. But that's just the thing she's done. Let's find out the things that Cheryl really treasures and the one thing she'd like to forget. Here is Cheryl Baker's My Time Capsule. We're going to talk about five things you want to put into a time capsule. When you say things, do you mean items or do you mean moments? I mean anything really they could be moments a view a person yeah memories and things like that are really important to me that's good 
some people use a thing to sort of launch them off into a hole. Okay, let me just go run and get something then. Okay. Hang on a minute. Right. <laughs> Good. All right then. I love the fact that you know where it is. Oh no! Yeah, of course. If it's if it's something special to me, then of course I know where it is. Yeah. All right then. Brilliant. Okay. Well, let's find out what you've decided to put in. Okay. Um, well, the first thing was a memory. I was sixteen. And I joined an amateur operatic society with my sister, Sheila. She's 11 years older than me. We used to do shows like The Merry Widow and mm. La Vie Parisienne and, uh, you know, Deflayed a Mouse. But we didn't do Gilbert and Sullivan and stuff like that. And I loved it. I really loved it. And then at Christmas, we, would do, we were asked to do a Christmas concert for the OAPs that lived in the area. And the area was Elephant and Castle. I lived in East London. And um, they were called the Cathedral Players, and they were based at St George's Cathedral. In uh, oh, excuse me, that was my tea. Um, <laughs> it was based <laughs> at St George's Cathedral in South London, up the road from the Elephant. And yeah. if you're a Londoner, you don't mix with the other side. You know, the north and the south side of the River Thames, near the Twain shall meet, but. <laughs> We broke that rule because we wanted to be a part of this amateuropathic society because they were so blimmin' good. And then come Christmas, we were asked to do a concert. And Sheila and I have always sung harmony. She was the first person to, she used to, because she's that much older than me, she used to buy the Everly Brothers and Buddy Holly and people like that. And she used to sing along and I used to sing along and I learned how to sing harmony with Sheila. And that's what I do now. That's my bag. I'm, I, it's all about the harmony for me. Yeah. So we said we would sing Mary's Boy Child, but we didn't have sheet music or anything, and the pianist that we had didn't know how to play it. So we sang it a cappella in harmony, just the two of us all the way through, and you could have heard a pin drop, and at the end we got a standing ovation. <gasps> and I can't tell you, I can't, I could never explain how I felt, how I was full of like emotion and, and, and glowing. It was, that, it was the first time that I'd stood on stage in front of an audience and had that kind of reaction. And it's the thing that made me want to do it again and again and again and again. It changed my life, just that one performance. And we carried on singing afterwards. You know, we, we sat down and we had to sing a, a hymn or something, you know, a Christmas carol. It could have been in double Dutch. It could have been upside down. All I was thinking was what had just happened and that magical moment of seeing the whole audience stand and applaud. Oh, honestly, I was glowing. I was glowing inside and out. It was fantastic. Yeah, I'm not surprised. How fantastic. 16. Yeah, but I did stand on stage before that. I won a competition with Sheila. I was about... 13 or 14, we were on the Isle of Sheppey at a competition, you know, like a talent competition. Yeah. We sang Buddy Holly, Guess It Doesn't Matter Anymore, and we won. But it was such a small competition. The prize was a tin of Maccasin each. So, <laughs> Where was that? Lays Down? Lays Down, yeah, Lays Down. Lovely. So the performance at St George's Cathedral absolutely trumped that. So that is in my memory box. I, that's... Absolutely, I will never forget that. I know. I wouldn't want to put a tin of Maccasin in there. <laughs> <laughs> That's really gorgeous. Mm. Oh, I love that song as well, Mary's Boy Child. Yeah. I used to go to Laysdale when I was a boy. Did you really? Yeah. 
I know exactly where you're talking about because I'm from Bermondsey. Ah, yes, yeah, my husband's from Bermondsey. That's another thing. You know, it's the other side. Yeah. You don't mix north and south of the river. But to go to Laysdown, we used to get the bus up to Bethnal Green Road and then get a grey-green coach. And it took forever to get to Laysdown. It took forever. But, you know, you're coming along the A2 and you're pootling along because, of course, the road was a lot slower in those days. And suddenly you cross the bridge and you see the little coloured roofs of the chalets. Oh, my heart used to skip a beat. And I, used to, <laughs> I knew for the next two weeks I was just going to be in absolute heaven. I loved it. And I thought, because that's the only place we ever went, I thought that was the only place you could go for a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. Well, I thought we always went overseas when I was a kid. Yeah. We went to Hailing Island, Isle of Sheppey, and occasionally the Isle of Wight. Yeah. So we were always going over water, as far as I was concerned. <laughs> We'd gone abroad. That we must have done. Mm. I love Laysdown. I can't tell you the hours I spent in the amusement arcades waiting for pennies to drop accidentally. Me too. And in those days, you could put your penny in and you could try and win a cigarette. You know, <laughs> or a polo mint. You know, I mean, honestly, I know. I used to be so proud when I would win a cigarette and take it back to because my mum and dad used to smoke in those days. Mm. Crazy the things that they did then. There was a pub right down the end of the main drag, the road that ran down to the beach. And Lenny Peters used to play there on the piano from Peters and Lee. Did he? Mm. Now, I knew the pubs because it was pub culture. So mum and dad, when they took us out, would go to the pub and we would sit outside. And have, you know, a bowl of whelks or something, you know, because you always have a seafood store there, wouldn't you? Yeah. Remember, there used to be at the other end of that where the seahorse was at one end. If you went all the way back down the other end, I think it was the Rose and Crown or the Angel and Crown or something like that. And there used to be a peanut seller. Oh, yeah. A big guy, always in a white jacket. Yeah. Really robust, big guy. And he used to sell bags of peanuts. Yeah. <laughs> My uncle. My Uncle Alf, or Jocker as we called him, he had a chalet at Laysdale. Yeah, Hearts Camp. Yeah. I loved it. Your parents almost certainly knew my uncle. Isn't that a small world? Yeah. The real happy days, Laysdale. I've just added an extra one into my memory bank, yeah. I'll clump them together <laughs> because, in a way, that performance at the talent competition led you on to singing Mary's Boy Child with your sister. Yeah. I can just see you now. And the great thing about that is the surprise that you had, Mm. that you didn't expect it, that you didn't know it was going to come. No, it was wonderful. It was really wonderful. And I couldn't wipe the smile off my face. I was (laughs) so nervous. My heart was pounding. And I, you know, Sheila sang the lead line and I sang, you know, the, the harmony. Also, I don't know, you're probably aware, but, Sisters, sisters, when they sing together, they sound like one voice split into two, and so it was. It was perfect. Yeah. And honestly, that was the that was the real turning point for me, where I thought, I know that I'm going to be a secretary in the city because that's what I studied at school. I left school at sixteen, and so probably by then, when, when we did that show, I was probably already working. I was getting the bus number eight bus into Liverpool Street and going to work and taking down shorthand and. But in my heart, I wanted to be a singer. But that performance is what made me say to myself, you have to do this. Mm. You have to do this, yeah. Thank goodness there wasn't some half-good pianist who said, well, I think I can play it, and then just yeah. ruined the whole thing by playing along. The fact that it was a cappella, I think, made it purer and more noticeable, but that's the wrong word I'm trying to say. But, yeah, for the audience, yeah. yeah. 
It's great. It took me five years after that to actually bite the bullet and get an audition for a, a first professional band. Okay, well, maybe we'll go on to that. We'll talk about that through other things. But that's a really lovely thing to start with. We'll put that into the time capsule as your first thing. Right. Okay, let's move on to number two. All right. Um, Kyla and Natalie, my twins, uh, they are 27 now, and there's one of them just coming out the door. Um <laughs> At 27 now, but I met my husband, Steve, in 1975 when I joined my first band. And But it took 12 years before we got together and started going out. And then we got married in 92. So um, what's that? What's, what's the maths? Hang on. So from 1975, 85, so 17 years later, 17 years after meeting, we eventually got married. Wow. I was nearly 38 and he was nearly 40. And neither of us had been married before. Um, we just weren't ready. But, you know, unfortunately with women, you've got the old biological clock ticking. Mm-hmm. We knew each other so well by then. We'd been mates and then in a relationship for such a long time that we knew that we just wanted to start a family straight away. And it didn't happen. And it didn't happen and it didn't happen and it didn't happen. So in the end, and because of my age, I went to see my gynecologist and he had a route around and he said, um, it's unlikely that you'll get pregnant because you've got scar tissue on your fallopian tubes, which is when I look back, I'd had cysts when I was young in my teen years. I'd had cysts and very painful. They come away, but they leave scar tissue. So I had that. I had endometriosis and I had fibroids. So it was known as the works. So he said, you won't get pregnant naturally. I can do an operation. And I can sort you out, take everything away that needs to be taken away. But there's always a risk. And if I have to, um, hang on just a sec. <laughs> Kids. <laughs> <You're> cleaner. <laughs> um, he said to me, I can take the lot out, but if anything should go wrong, it will mean a hysterectomy. And I, I'm one of five kids. My mum was one of 11. My dad was one of nine. I've got so many cousins and aunts and uncles and, you know, and I just imagined that one day I was going to have four kids. And that was the realisation that actually you might not have any. And he said, oh, there's an alternative. You could go down the IVF route. And I went, well, that's it. Absolutely. That was, for me, that was my safety net and the only option, really. I wasn't prepared to have the operation in case it went wrong. So I went down mm. the IVF route, or we did, and first time it failed, second time it failed, third time we had frozen embryos and it worked. Steve was on tour with Cliff Richard. He's a bass player. He was working yeah. with Cliff Richard in those days. And um, it worked. And I went with my sister to have a scan because Steve was away in Denmark, I think, and the, they put the scan in. How blunt can I be on this podcast? As blunt as you choose to be. Okay, um, it was it was a dildo. The it's <laughs> it wasn't really a dildo, but it was the exact shape of a dildo because it was only like two weeks or something. They wouldn't have detected anything over my stomach, so they had to go internal. Oh. And she was moving it about, and uh, she found a heartbeat. And she said, "There's one." And because of the the accuracy and everything, it can get morphing into shapes. And she went, oh, look, there it is. And it, it went into the shape of a pear. And then she moved across. And this time she went, there's another heartbeat. And it morphed into the shape of a banana. 
And my sister went, oh, you're having a bowl of fruit. <laughs> so then I rang Steve and I said, Steve, um, I've been for the scan. And he went, and I went, and I'm pregnant. He went, oh, fantastic. That's great. That's great. I went, oh, but there's news. There's more. And he went, more what? I went, baby, Steve. There's my baby. <laughs> two. Wow. Anyway, they were born five weeks prem. One of them was quite poorly. Natalie was quite poorly when she was born. Her lungs weren't developed, but she's absolutely fine now. But I just want to show you this. Oh, look at that tiny little baby growth. It was too big, 56 centimetres, and it absolutely swamped them. They were so tiny. Wow. And I've had this in my drawer by my bed ever since because I can't believe that they started life smaller than this tiny little baby grow. Yeah. Natalie did suffer at first. She was in the special care baby unit and she had everything, tubes everywhere. They were working her lungs. They were working her heart. He actually came in, the paediatrician, he came in and said, we have to paralyse her so that we can take utter control of her organs. And honestly, it's the most distressing thing that any parent would want to hear. And there was her twin sister, Kyla, who actually weighed less. She was slightly smaller than Natalie, but she was absolutely fine. But Kyla had to be taken out with forceps, so she had this funny little pointy head, like my favourite Martian. <laughs> he was fine, but poor Natalie, you know. My mum, I'm not a religious person in the slightest, but my mum really was. She was raised a staunch Catholic. And when she came in, she went, oh, poor little girl. And she, she said... My real name's Rita. I don't know if you're aware of that. Rita, I'm saying prayers for Natalie every night. I say prayers for her. And that meant such a lot to me because prayer meant a lot to my mum. And I knew that it was strength for my Mm mum. It meant an awful lot because I knew that she was giving me her strength through her prayer. Mm. It's the most joyous time of my life to give birth to my babies, but also to have one of them so poorly. And to think that it was touch and go whether she was going to survive or not. I mean, if you saw her now, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think there was anything wrong with that. Although no. she does something called achalasia, which is where your esophagus closes. And when you swallow food, it just gets, it stays there. She's had three operations on it now, three procedures. I wonder if that's because she had tubes down her throat when she was a baby. Quite often that's caused because the valve that goes between the esophagus and the stomach is slightly damaged. I I know this because I suffer from it myself. Oh, there you go. That's a funny thing. I've never asked anybody this, but I have wondered. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Obviously I could be, you know, but I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) I had exactly the same relationship with my mother when I decided that I didn't believe in God. I used to slightly ridicule her for her devout Catholicism. But then as time went on, it became very clear to me the joy and the solace she got from it. Yeah. And I really grew to respect it. Yeah. And to be grateful for it. She never um, forced it on us, never forced. Because funnily enough, we were um, raised as um, C of E, even though she was a Catholic. But she never forced religion on us. But to the day she died, she always had her rosary hanging on the end of her bed and we buried her with her rosaries because they meant a lot to her. Yeah, I think if I'd buried my mother with all of her rosaries, we would have had to pay for a much bigger coffin. <laughs> I've still got piles of them all over the place. They keep cropping up. She loved a rosary. <laughs> my mum. Lovely. There's plenty of room to put that tiny little baby grow in there to remind you of that experience. I'm definitely not going to put the dildo in. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> the only way that they can properly get in 
was to use this thing that looked, it looked exactly like a dildo. <laughs> no, exactly. I know. I'm being flippant. I don't even know what a dildo looks like. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brilliant. Okay, let's move on to item number three. Okay. Um, in 2010, I ran the Great North Run in Newcastle. I actually started running when my children were born. I was 40 when Kyla and Natalie were born. And I started running just to keep fit. And I've got friends who run. So it was a nice way of not just keeping fit, but of catching up, you know, with your mates. Mm. And one of them said, will you run the marathon with me? And I went, Sue, I'm never going to run a marathon. I'm telling you that now. I'm never going to run a marathon. Don't have one in me. I might stretch to maybe doing a half marathon. So I did. I trained. It's blooming hard, you know. I don't know if you've run one. It's blooming hard training for a, a long run like that. And we did the Great North Run in 2010, and I absolutely loved it. And when it finished, you run, I mean, all the time, you're getting so much support from the crowds that are watching and encouraging you and offering you sweets and things that, you know, sugar and energy lifts so that you to keep you going. And plus, for the Great North Run, they give you, if you're a celebrity, they give you um, a runner to go along with to encourage you so that if you start slowing down, you'll go, don't worry, you can go as slow as you like, just keep running. Don't go into a walk because your muscles will start to seize up. Just keep going. And they encourage you. It was a great run. And it was a sunny day. It was beautiful, even though it was uh, it was in September. Yeah, it's always in September. And at the end of the Great North Run, you just go downhill, right? So it's a really easy run. And you see the sea in the distance and the beach, and that's where you're running down to. And the road is... There's a throng of people cheering you on because they know that you're coming to the end of your half marathon. And it's fantastic. And I finished it and I went, I loved it. I loved it. Right. I'm going to do the marathon. And so I applied and got a place for the London Marathon 2011. And the training for a marathon compared to a half marathon. So if you've run a half marathon, imagine you've run it, you're knackered at the end of it. If you're running a marathon, you've got to do it all again. <laughs> no, the training for that was it's it's hell because you have to train through the winter. You're running through mud, you're running through icy winds and icy rain. It was horrible. But come the marathon day, April 2011, the atmosphere is electric. It's magical. And also being a celebrity again, they do look after you. They put you up in a hotel the night before at the Tower of London and you get and you get fed. And it is a privilege, really, when you're a celebrity. They do give you stuff that the ordinary guys that, that are raising money for charities and everything, they don't get that, which makes you feel a bit guilty. But you still go, you know, not, you're not going to turn down a free bed for the night, are you? <laughs> and you also you have to run for a charity. You can't, I, I think it's wrong to do something as extreme as a marathon and not raise money for a charity when you know mm. that you can especially with a celebrity status, you absolutely must. So we got up really early on the morning of the marathon and I was running with a girl called Anna Skinner, whose husband uh, is Mick Skinner, who used to play rugby for England. Yeah. We got up early and you get bussed down to the start and you're in a special VIP area where you've got the nice toilets. Because I don't know if you, you know, it's like when you go to a big event like Glastonbury or something and the toilets there are awful. That's what the toilets are like for um, all the runners in the marathon, unless you're a VIP, and then you get the cross <laughs> runs, and they give you breakfast and all this. It's really lovely, and you have your own start time. You don't have to run with everyone else. 
And the whole experience was fantastic. The London Marathon attracts the most wonderful support everywhere you go. And also you've got fantastic landmarks, you know, to see. And honestly, it was incredible. The whole thing, the whole event, the feeling it gave me, the warmth it gave me, because we had our names on our shirts. And go on, Cheryl, go on. The pink ladies, we had pink shirts. Go on, the pink ladies. And really encouragement and people offering you things like a cheese sandwich and and you take um, a donut just because they want you to keep going and loads of dolly mixtures, obviously. And then you come down Horse Cars Parade and you know that you're you're just about to turn into the Mall with Buckingham Palace behind you. So you run down, you get to Buckingham Palace, you turn right, And there, either side, the masses of people cheering, you see the finish line and you see there's there's also um, a huge screen. You're running towards yourself because you see yourself on the screen and the commentator picks up the numbers of everyone who's running around there and says, here she comes, blah, 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 here's her. And they're, oh, Cheryl Baker. And then he played a bit of making your mind up. Ah, brilliant. Oh, all of a sudden, you haven't just run 26 miles. You've just started. You're full of energy. If you ever see, I mean, watch the end of the marathon. The people that are running at the end are proper running full out because of the elation you're feeling. You've finished this crazy thing that no one should ever have to do, run 26 miles. Ridiculous. And then as I was running towards the, you know, the, the end and there's this gantry at the top and people were standing at the top, there was Richard Branson because it was the Virgin London Marathon. And he went, Cheryl, Cheryl. And I went, oh, Richard. And uh, I said, can I have two tickets to America for a charity? And he went, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. And this, <laughs> this is put round your neck. <sighs> and there's people there ready to rub your aching muscles if you need to. And mm-hmm. they give you a goodie bag. And, and then your family are there. And, oh, it's just wonderful. It's definitely one of the top five things I've ever done in my life. Winning Eurovision, getting married, having my babies, and this are the top four, I would say. Yeah. I've run it since, and I've run others, but this one is the one that takes the cake. That very first one. I don't think, you know, whatever you do, if you when you repeat it, it's good. It's never as good. You don't get that first exhilarating feel of something that you've achieved that you've never done before. That first standing ovation in the cathedral. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. So my first London Marathon, definitely. Fantastic. And, of course, unlike the Great North Run, the London Marathon, rather unfairly, I always think, there's a very slight gradient on that last bit. You're running uphill towards the end. Now, you probably didn't even notice that. No. You don't notice it. You don't notice it because all you see is the end. And the great thing is, as well, all the way through the race, you've got markers to say which miles you're on or which kilometres and everything. But at the end, it goes down to... 100 metres, and oh, that's that's just fantastic. That makes me go cold even thinking about it now that I ever achieved that. I honestly don't think I've got another one in me. I think I'll do another half marathon, but I don't think now that I could do another marathon. But the memory of that first one, I could never beat that. What an extraordinary thing to do, because I do know the amount of work that it takes for people to get to the point where you can run that thing. You don't just turn up. Months and months and months of work on your own, always with the thought in mind, I've got to do this because I've said I'm going to do this for this charity and I have to do that. 
That's right. Amazing. What I used to do, I used to, because my self-discipline is so awful, if I had to go out, I, I had to do, I remember this one particular time, I had to do a 10-mile run in training and it was raining and it was a miserable day, but I had to do it. And I said to Steve, my husband, I said, if, uh, if I go out now and I start running, I'm going to come back. I said, so drive me 10 miles away and drop me. <laughs> and that's how I did it mm. because, honestly, I would have gone, you know what, let's not worry about it this week. Uh, so, But you have to put the training in. You absolutely have to. Yeah. That was the only way for me that it was going to work. Drop me somewhere far enough away so that the only way I can get home is running. Walking would take too long. So. <laughs> I've got to put that medal in there, yeah. a beautiful medal, to remind you of that extraordinary feat. And also, I'm pretty sure that just behind you, at the back of the mound, there was somebody on a balcony going, oh, look, Philip, it's Cheryl Baker. <laughs> I'm making your mind up. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if they do watch the people coming down. The- I bet they do, you know, yeah. from Buckingham Palace. I bet they do, because it's, it's a magnificent sight to see. It must be amazing, must not it? Yeah. I've been to the marathon to watch before now and cheer people on, especially because I know how much it means, you know. You really must cheer people on. They really need it. It's the fuel that keeps the runners going. Yeah. But, yeah, funny that. I didn't think of that. Could have Queenie and now Philip might have been going, go on, Cheryl. (laughs) I have cheated once. I, I filmed being in the London Marathon and then stood at the side while makeup people put sweat on me and then I joined in with the race for a little bit and then I stopped and, oh, my God, did I feel like a fraud. <laughs> I went to New York to, to support my friend Sue, who was, you know, I mentioned earlier. She ran her very first marathon in New York and we all flew out. There's a big crowd of us. We flew out to support her. And at the end, it finished in Central Park and... But the time she'd got round to coming to see us, it was dark. And it's always done in November, first Sunday in November. And I was freezing cold because it had been a lovely day. But by the time the sun had gone down, it was freezing cold. And Steve said, Eric, look, I've just found this, um, what they throw away. You know, those thin foil wraps, yeah? Yeah. I went, oh, that's better. Why does this work? It's so thin, but it really works. And so we started walking back to the hotel and people were going, well done. Congratulations. <laughs> you cheat. <laughs> and you said, I just happened to have my London Marathon medal with me. I'll put that on. <laughs> well, if anybody's not been to see a marathon, I would recommend it, I have to say. It's an amazing thing to see. If you haven't got the determination to actually take part yourself, which, yeah. you know, I mean, most people haven't. But if you haven't got that, then it's well worth going to see it. I went to see a friend run the Paris Marathon, and we had the most fantastic day following him around and, you know, popping up at various places going, keep going, Bob. That's it. We'd have lunch. It was brilliant. That's what happened with um, with my kids and Steve and friends and that. They were travelling around London using the river. They were getting the riverboat to drop them off at different points, you know, like starting at Greenwich, of course. Mm-hmm. It was great. It was, And it, it gives you such a boost when you're a runner to see your family and friends when they pop up. It is lovely. Yeah. Yeah. And they've got fantastic music everywhere you go. It's an amazing occasion. It really is. Okay. well, the London Marathon, your medal goes into the time capsule. Brilliant. So we've got two more things to put in there, Cheryl. Okay, sorry to interrupt, but it's time to take a short break so we can play some ads. We'll be back straight after. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back. Okay, let's return to the lovely Cheryl Baker and discover what else she'd like to put in her time capsule. Okay. Well, I suppose really one of them needs to be the Eurovision trophy, doesn't it? Really? Mm. I mean... I remember watching Sandy Shaw when she won the Eurovision Song Contest in 1967. I was 13, but music meant everything to me already by then. And she won the Eurovision. I was a runner. I loved sport, all sport. I used to be in every sporting team at school, primary and secondary. And even when I left school, I used to start netball teams and that so that we could go into the Stockbrokers League or the Shipbrokers League or whatever. I used to, I loved sport. And so I actually thought when I was young, I want to be a runner and I want to be an Olympic runner and I want to win a gold medal. And when I saw Sandy Shaw win the Eurovision, I thought, that's a gold medal for music and you're representing your country. And I thought it was amazing. So then that was my ultimate ambition then was because I loved music so much. It was, you know, I'd still I'd still like to win a gold medal for for running in the Olympics. <laughs> I, somehow I don't think it's going to happen. But, yeah, that was it. That my, I wanted to be a singer. I wanted to sing harmony, so it had to be a band. I didn't want to sing solo. I wanted to be in a band, and ultimately I wanted to be in the Eurovision Song Contest. And so the first band I joined was Coco, 1975. Our first gig was in October 1975. Within weeks of joining... We had to go up to London to have a meeting with someone called David Most, who was Mickey Most's brother. Mm. He'd written this song called Wake Up, and he wanted to put it in the Song for Europe. Now, the Song for Europe, it was the first year of the Song for Europe, it was 1976, because prior to that, they used to have one singer do a show, like, for six weeks, and the audience would write in and choose their song. So you'd have Cliff, Cliff did it twice, didn't they? Olivia, um, The Shadows. The one singer was going to do the song, but the audience would choose which song to do. Uh, but in 1976, they changed all that and they made it an open competition. So anybody could enter and anybody could write the song. And 
David Mose wrote this song, Wake Up, and said, would we, Coco, do it? The competition, I think, might have been in February that year, February 1976, or maybe March. And that was early, much earlier than it is now. And we did it. And so within weeks of, or maybe two or three months, actually, of ever first setting foot on a main stage with professional lights and everything on me, I was performing at the Royal Albert Hall on BBC One, and it was such a major thing in those days. It was the front page of the Radio Times, a picture of all of the artists that were performing that year. And in all of the newspapers, you know that when there's the Grand National and in the middle you've got all the runners and riders and you can do your own. They did that, but with all of the artists that were performing. So you could you could write, you know, who your, your favourites were and that kind of thing. It was massive. And it was me, Rita Crudgington from Bethnal Green. I love Crudgington. <laughs> when I read that the other day, I thought, so, wow, what a great name. Rita Maria Crudgington. And, uh, and you know, but I'm falling at the roll-up. Oh, what? how did that happen? You know, six months ago, I was sitting at a desk taking dictation, and here I am shitting myself on stage at the roll-up at Blimmin' Hall. It was nuts. And the night before, we had to stay in a hotel. It was a horrible hotel. It was one of those horrible London hotels that are really, really old, and all the rooms are really tiny, and it was noisy. You could hear noise all night long, and I didn't sleep a wink. And the next day, you know, we had to go into the Albert Hall to do the show, and I went into makeup with my makeup done like I did it on stage. Pancake, like really dark brown pancake, really bold blue green eyes, and they said, do you mind if we take it off and start again? <laughs> so anyway, we did that song for Europe. And there were two bands that were all the time going first, second, second, first, first, second, second, first. And that was Coco and Brotherhood of Man. Brotherhood of Man beat us by two points on the last boat. But thank goodness for that. Thank goodness that they went on to do the Eurovision. I mean, it was the biggest selling Eurovision song ever, Save Your Kisses for Me. You know, it won for the UK, which was amazing. But I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't ready, even though it was my dream to do Eurovision. We wouldn't have won for a start. And I wasn't ready for it. I hadn't Mm. earned any stripes yet. You know, I was a rookie. And so um, two years later, 1978, we did the song for Europe again, Coco, and we won. And we did the Eurovision. It was in Paris. And the whole thing about it was not very nice you know there was my dream of doing Eurovision was kind of shattered because the whole experience wasn't very pleasant and we came 11th which in those days was the worst the UK had ever done (laughs) you know and I so I I I love my royal family and I love my country and I felt like I'd let the queen I'd let the queen and the whole country down by coming 11th I honestly felt ashamed of myself you know why didn't we come second or third like we always do and so that's when I thought that's it now. You've achieved your ultimate ambition of performing in the Eurovision Song Contest. And two years after that, 1980, I left. I'm done with singing. I'm going to go back to being a secretary, which is exactly what I did. But I got a job in the recording studio that Coco used. So I said to him, I'll type all your letters. I'll answer your phones. I'm here if you need a BV for anyone who, who wants some back in singing. And in came the woman who put Bucks Fizz together and said, Cheryl, why are you here? And I went, oh, I've left Coco. And she went, well, I'm putting this group together to do the song for you. Do you want to be involved? And so, I don't know, fate, kismet, good timing, luck, whatever it is, the fact that I left Coco when I did, 
And I was in that studio at the time when Nicola Martin was hoping to put a band together for the Eurovision. What do they say? What's the saying? Everything fell into place. All the stars became aligned. Honestly, they really did. And I joined Bucks Fears. We met on the 11th of January, 1981. And on the 11th of March, 1981, so exactly to the day, two months after we first met, we swept the board with the Song for Europe. We absolutely annihilated. We, we, we were clear out-and-out winners. Well, there was no other group that was going to win that year. No other group. No. We went on to do the Eurovision in Dublin. And whereas I'd done it, the previous one in 1978 with Coco, I did that in Paris, and it was very staid and everyone was kept apart. And it was, it was I mean, Dublin, Ireland, they know how to have a good time, don't they? So... And we just did. We had so much fun, even though the IRA had threatened to, you know, disrupt the competition. We had people uh, guarding our doors and we had outriders wherever we were. But that, I don't know, that all made it even more exciting. But to actually win your ultimate childhood dream, to actually achieve it, was the most remarkable thing ever. And I wish I could show you the trophy, but I've never had it in my hands. From that day to this, I've never held that Eurovision trophy. Mike Nolan has it. He has it on a table. No one ever sees it. <laughs> That's it. But the Eurovision trophy, if I had it physically, it absolutely would be in my box of fantastic memory. It's memories, really. It's something that triggers a memory, but I would never forget that. I would never forget winning something that, as a child, was my dream. My dream for a girl from Bethnal Green that I knew what I would never achieve. That would never happen to you, Rate, because you're an ordinary girl living in a council flat and you're studying short anatyping at school and it's not going to happen to you, so get it out of your head. It bloody did happen. Hmm. Amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. And now I know what Philip said when the Queen said, oh, look, this is Gerald Baker. He said, yes, yes, she came 11th, you know. <laughs> She said, no, no, that was the first time, darling. (laughs) (laughs) What a thing to have done. Yeah. What a thing to have done. And I've I've so resisted doing all the lines about, come on, Gerald, make your mind up and stop living in a land of make-believe and you're looking as gorgeous as ever, my camera never lies. They're (laughs) all there because it's absolutely part of our, well, it's part of the history of the pop music. It's a brilliant thing to have done. Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, tomorrow we're going to be in Minehead at Butlins doing these 80s revival gigs. Yeah. And you get Tony Hadley, Powell, Go West, all the artists from that era. And they're amazing. And all of the audience, I mean, it's absolutely rammed. They always sell out. You get about 6,000 people in the one room. Mm. And uh, they all dress up in 80s outfits. And if they've come, usually if there's two couples, inevitably they'll dress as Bucksbys. You always get three or four groups that are definitely Bucksbys. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> but they all dress with removable skirts. Oh, yeah, they do. <laughs> if you go to um, a fancy dress store, they all have the Bucksbys outfits. Amazing. Really, really. It, it is amazing. That bit of Velcro, that moment when the skirts came off, changed our lives. Because honestly, Mike, I really believe that we would not have won without the skirt. We only won by four points. We won because of Velcro. That may well be true. Definitely. Everybody remembers it. Yeah. Yeah. How funny. (laughs) Fantastic. Okay, we've got one final thing to put in. Something you want to get rid of from your life. Something you'd rather forget. Yeah. I was thinking about that. I asked Steve and he said, 
the first bloke you were engaged to, because I was engaged quite a few times. I'm not sure, really. I don't know if there's anything I want to get rid of. I think even things that have gone wrong in your life sometimes give you something back. I mean, obviously, there was a time that I would definitely want to remove from my life, and that was when Buxley's had the coach crash. It was December the 11th, 1984, and we were on tour. We were in Newcastle, and we only were travelling from Newcastle City Hall to the hotel, which was 11 or 12 minutes, that's it. And the oncoming traffic was diverted onto our side of the road because of roadworks, and our coach collided with a lorry. And Mike Nolan and I went through the windscreen. I don't remember it. That's the thing. I, I, I don't remember it at all. I just, I just woke up in the road, which was really weird, really weird. That moment when you actually don't know, and I don't know to this day, I don't remember anything about it, and neither does Mike. Um, so I suppose I would put that in. It's a memory that I want to forget, but one actually that I don't really remember. But the reason I put it in is because Mike was so bad. He was so ill and he had a blood clot removed from the brain. And I think really as much as he is fantastic now, I still think that he's affected by it. But if you saw him, you wouldn't think there was anything wrong with him, but there absolutely is. And so I would, because of the destruction that that, that did, I mean, it, uh, our keyboard player, who's also who's also our guitarist, Tom, he broke his spine in three places. Good Lord. Miraculously, not his spinal cord, but um, it took him months and months of rehabilitation. And he broke every rib and both collarbones and his skull. He was absolutely smashed to bits, but he survived. But that whole period... And, and, and you know what's weird, though, Michael, what's really weird, even though that was such a distressing thing to happen, I, I broke um, three vertebrae in my spine. You're going to break something going through a windscreen, aren't you? Yeah. Um, and we looked a real mess, me and Mike, we looked such a mess. Both of us hit our heads. And my our hair looked like as if we'd had it all back home with blood and glass. Oh. Yeah. But after that, I had to wear a surgical corset, but I was all right. I could I could stand, I could walk a bit, and I got stronger and stronger. I made quite a quick recovery. Mike took months, and it gave me the opportunity to pursue my television career because I was free. I didn't have any responsibility to the band because we couldn't work. I'd already started doing a bit of TV, but I was offered a show on London Week in Television with Michael Aspel, which was the 6 o'clock show, that was a Friday show, but and I did I guested on that, but I co-hosted on Saturday. I did the Saturday six o'clock show. I did Saturday picture show, which was live every Saturday morning with Mark Curry, and I did I started on record breakers. It gave me the opportunity to do a load of stuff. So in a weird way, it worked to my advantage, even though it was you know such a terrible thing. So the the whole. If I could remember it, I would put that memory in a black hole in the sky and never to be seen again. But the aftermath of it, for me, was actually great because it gave me a television career that lasted until probably the year 2000. They stopped employing me after that. I became too old. um, (laughs) Yeah, ancient. But, um, yeah, so a dreadful thing that actually worked out career-wise in my favour. Bizarre, really. Yes. I've been a very lucky girl. I've been a very lucky girl all my life. Well, you say that, but I think also it's you making the most of them. Yeah. Oh, definitely. 
definitely. I, th- I do believe in the saying, you make your own luck. I think you put yourself in a position to be lucky. But um, I have been terribly lucky. I really have. And I fully appreciate it. And being in this position where you're a celebrity because you've done something not that extraordinary, you know, you sang a song and people liked it. And then suddenly you're a celebrity. And because of that, you get asked to do this, that you get to offered to do fantastic things that, you know, like we're in the Bucks this day is traveling all over the world, places that I'd only read about. The Philippines, who goes to the Philippines? <laughs> and Chile and Japan, you know, wonderful, wonderful opportunities. And the same with record breakers and, and all the different things that I've done. I worked on a travel channel, uh, well, it's called the Travel Channel. That took me all over the world. It was wonderful. I've had the most fantastic life. And I fully do not take it for granted. And that's why if I can do anything for anybody, just by being Cheryl Baker, if just by having my name and my face means that I can raise money for a needy cause, then I'm obligated to do it because I'm so lucky to have been where I am now and done the things that I've done. <laughs> you lovely woman. I say arsehole, is that all right? <laughs> you could say that. It makes it as clear as a bell. You've absolutely got it. I'm sure the Queen says arsehole. I'm sure she did. <laughs> Cheryl, it's been absolutely gorgeous talking to you. How lovely. Thank you so much. I loved it. I'll go on a bit though, don't I? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton Stevens, and my guest, Cheryl Baker. Wasn't that fun? In fact, I hope you enjoyed it enough to persuade you, if you haven't done so far, to subscribe to this podcast, which you can do very easily on all podcast providers. And if you've already subscribed, please do rate the show to help others discover us. You may even be able to write a short review, or even a long one. I don't think there's any limit on the number of words you can use. Just some of the words you can use. Yeah, you can't use that one. You can also follow me or My Time Capsule on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook to see what we're up to and what's coming up. And you can listen to the theme tune composed by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify anytime. This cast-off production was produced by John Fenton Stevens. So thanks for listening and thanks to Cheryl for being such a lovely guest and introducing me to the phrase, Are so lucky, which I'll immediately add to my vocabulary although it does make me picture a rather bizarre end-of-the-pier arcade game. Come on, roll up, roll up, try your luck. Here we are, three apples, win a prize if you can throw one and make it stick up to pigs behind. Come on, lady, you look lucky, but oh, you are so lucky. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.